This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who podcast, we cast our eye over the toy cupboard and see what Doctor Who has brought for us to play with. Yes, indeed. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. I'm afraid this time around we are minus one of the team. Yes. So who do we have hiding in the corners? Who, who's that? I just can't quite make him out. It's me. Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, it's both of you. It's both of you in the same corner. It's me. <laughs> Hello, Tom. Hello, Trev. Hello. It, it is very cramped over here in the corner. I will agree, Tom, because there are, there are quite a lot of toys and bits of plastic spread everywhere in the camper van at the moment, making it even more crammed than usual. <laughs> Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's been a, it's been a while waiting for this stuff to turn up, but over the last couple of years, it's safe to say that the place has got a bit packed out and a little bit cluttered. Well, yes. I mean, I think it only stands to reason, really, when you consider the amount of merchandise that's available. Certainly, since the new series has become so immensely popular, it's almost impossible to not buy stupid amounts of plastic stuff that, frankly, you just leave on the bookshelf and very rarely use or even play with. But of course, that might just be me. <laughs> well, I, I've got a collection downstairs on one of the shelves of a load of sonic screwdrivers and what amazes me is how excited i got when i could actually go out and buy a sonic screwdriver (laughs) i I think the idea was more attractive than than actually acquiring it i have to say and uh, i I just wanted something like that to wave around a little bit but after you've done it for about five minutes then you know it's yeah what next oh james you called yourself a doctor who fan Hours of endless fun with a sonic screwdriver. I will sit here often when we record a Doctor Who podcast, twirling my uh, 10th Doctor sonic screwdriver. Moustache. Well, and my moustache, and we're sort of laughing (laughs) maniacally, yes, I know. But the the sonic screwdriver will often be in hand here, because it's it's just, just such a wonderful little prop to have while we're talking. Oh, well, it's certainly going to be an interesting discussion, but uh, but before we get heavily into it, I think we've got, oh, I don't know whether you call these announcements or domestics or, or whatever, um, but, but first of all, I do want to just tell you the reason why Leeson isn't joining us today. Now, I, I don't know whether either of you two listen to Radio Rassilon on a regular basis, and uh, quite frankly, listeners, I don't recommend it. It's really not a very good podcast. Mm, mm. But, um, <laughs> but, but Leeson... They don't bring out enough episodes, you know, I mean, the quality really isn't there as far as I'm concerned. Well, there you go. And you know why? Their recording studio is in the bathroom. Now, you you think I'm joking. Uh, They have got an extremely high-tech electrical setup in Leeson's bathroom. Therefore, is it any wonder when their equipment suffers from water damage and Leeson is unable to join us. Uh, Mm, But that is the genuine reason as to why Leeson is not in the camper van this morning. He's um, he's got sink plunger in one hand and not a Dalek one, and he's uh, he's, he's trying to sort out his recording studio. Where do you sit? (laughs) One can only imagine, um, particularly when there's two of them in there. I was going to say, there's there's two people on the show, but there's only like one seat that's usually in there. Well, they're very good friends. They go back a long way, Leeson and Harry. Apparently, yes. (laughs) 
Leeson is not joining us this time around, no, but he will be joining us in just a few short weeks. And this this is quite an exciting announcement, I have to say. Um, as you know, we've expanded the Doctor Who podcast team fairly recently. There are now six participants that feature on the show fairly regularly. And I'm pleased to say that all four UK-based DWP hosts are going to be at the British Film Institute on the 14th of August watching the advanced screening of Asylum of the Daleks. That's Tom, Leeson, Ian and myself. Now, how good is that, Trevor? Oh, I'm over the moon, James. You have no (laughs) idea how thrilled I am to hear that you will be attending and I won't. No, and I, I do feel bad for you, really, I have to say, because this is going to be a monumental event. I'm sure that'll pass pretty soon. <laughs> yes, OK. Wow. <laughs> well, do you know what? I've got to say, I'm really excited by that, because my, my understanding was that it was almost impossible to get hold of tickets. So I don't know what favours you did or who you did them for, but <laughs> I know that those tickets are like hot property. So like a 10-year-old child, what I'm really most excited about is that maybe we might even catch a glimpse of some of the lead actors. I'm so- I'm, I'm silly happy about this. Well, I, I think that's very, very likely. Uh, all, all of these screenings have panels afterwards. And I think last year when they did exactly the same event for Let's Kill Hitler, uh, Matt Smith, Stephen Moffat, Edward Russell and a couple of others were, were all on stage and they took questions as well. And it was just just a brilliant, brilliant event. So I think the chances are, Tom, that you are finally going to get to meet Matt Smith. This is great. I don't know if that um, exclusion order is still in place. Um. <laughs> well, we, he probably doesn't know that you've got a ticket yet either. Yeah, uh, But okay. it's, it's, it's definitely going to happen. The DWP are going to be at this event so if you are one of the other very very few individuals who are able to get tickets uh, for this event then drop us an email and we'll find out what you thought of the episode after you've seen it as well feedback at the doctor who podcast.com well that's lovely that's one email i won't have to send this week then will i (laughs) (laughs) you can stay in a camper van with michelle and do some cleaning as you've promised to do oh i see so you go off and see the premiere of you know the you know the lead up to the 50th anniversary season and you want me and michelle to hang back at the dirty camper van and do a bit of hoovering thank you very much Well, we've already mentioned one other podcast with Radio Russell on. Why not mention another one? Radio Free Scaro. Uh, Trevor and I have had the good fortune. Is it good fortune? I'm not sure. To meet all three hosts at Gallifrey a couple of years or so ago. The honour, the privilege. Yes. Mm. On whose side? Both, one would hope. Hmm, I suppose that makes sense. But uh, one of the things that Stephen, who, who fronts up the podcast really, has not really delved into is Big Finish. And I, I got into a bit of a Twitter chat with him a little while ago, extolling the virtues of some of the finer plays. And he agreed to take part in what you can only describe as a social experiment, uh, certainly within the context of, uh, of Doctor Who fandom anyway. And he's going to be listening to one episode a day of a particular Fifth Doctor play and he's going to report back on Radio Free Scarrow what he thought. Now, my my bet is that he'll be absolutely hooked because I've chosen the stories for him. Okay. Uh, but there's a chance here for you listeners to get involved as well. If you take a listen to what will be episode 318 of Radio Free Scarrow, find out what story Stephen is listening to and send us an email at feedback at the Doctor Who podcast dot com. You stand a chance of winning a CD of that very same play. Okay, cool. Wow, very nice. The big Finnish mm. invasion of Canada begins now. 
Well, Big Finish is quite cool. But I've got to say, I mean, as, as, as amazing as Big Finish is and with all the great stuff that's coming up, Jago and Lightfoot, more Fourth Doctor adventures, more main range adventures, and the return of the Eighth Doctor, which I'm really looking forward to. The actual TV series is coming back really, really soon. We're within weeks of it coming back on the screen. Mm, it still hasn't been announced yet. So you know what it's like in the UK. It will be about 24 hours and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, <laughs> the announcement will go out. Oh, watch Doctor Who tomorrow night. You see, the thing is that they'll, they'll still get gangbuster ratings. I mean, I, I don't know why the BBC spend all this money on publicity. Why don't they just let the fans do the publicity for them? Send a tweet and then just sit back with a cup of coffee and watch the word spread within seconds. They've saved themselves Whoa. millions of dollars of promotion. No trailers, no posters, no radio spots, no no free DVDs to reviewers. Just sit back and let us do their job for them. I think you're right, Trev. I, I think Doctor Who fans these days really do get involved in promoting a show. And I do think that's something, you know, that's a result of the BBC becoming more commercially aware. Having said that, clearly we don't have the access to, you know, the side of buildings or the sides of buses because that really does cost a lot of money. And I, I think, therefore, promoting the show in that way does deliver a return of some kind or at least the, um, the perceived... Or, or at least the perception at the BBC is that this, you know, high-powered promotion of the show does bring Doctor Who back into the consciousness of uh, of the general populace, not just Doctor Who fans who know when the show's coming back mm. the minute it's announced. It strikes me that the show is more of a cultural event than um, a cult event, which is what it used to be. I like the idea that there are big trailers and that there's cinema trailers as well. I think when I first saw um, the cinema trailer for season three, I think it was, I was knocked out. It was just huge. It was beautiful. It was great, which is another reason why I look forward to seeing Asylum of the Daleks on a big screen because more than ever before, Doctor Who seems at home in a cinema on a giant-sized screen now. Hmm. Yeah, it's certainly more cinematic, and I think Doctor Who has probably got more in common with most film releases than pretty much any other programme that's on our screens these days. But whether or not it's trying too hard to come across as a, as an epic space tale, um, something like Star Trek, in other words, which really did make the transition to big screen, I suppose it's arguable, but I think they did it really, really well. I think Doctor Who would always struggle... And um, I, I think trying to create the feel of a big sci-fi epic within a large screen is probably as far as Doctor Who can go as opposed to actually make that jump into the cinema world. Since 2005 and the return of Doctor Who to the small screen, there has been a marked change in the amount of merchandise that the show produces and, of course, that's available for consumption. Once upon a time, there were DVDs, there were books, and, in fairness, not much else. But since 2005, there's been a whole raft of toys, games and spin-off merchandise that's become available for fans to buy and play with. Now, um, there's so much of this, and if anyone remembers watching uh, Put Your House in Order or Getting Your House in Order uh, a couple of months ago, you can see how easily one can drown in merchandise. But today, we'd just like to have a, qu- have a quick look uh, at some of the toys um, that have become available since the return of the show a few years ago. Now, guys, I've got to, I've got to be honest. I mean, when I think back to when I was a lot younger... I remember that there, I could buy um, sort of push-along Daleks and I could buy um, little badges and things. But the only real non-book merchandise that I remember clearly were a couple of things from a company called Dennis Fisher. I don't remember. If, I don't know if you remember that company at all. Yes. No. Yeah. I, I, I no, do. I they, they did the little um, push-along Daleks, didn't they, or something? Or, or... Well, 
Well, they did push along Daleks, but the things that really stick out in my mind, um, and, 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 and listeners, I'd say maybe go along to, uh, to eBay and have a look. Uh, Dennis Fisher, D-E-N-Y-S Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R. Um, they used to make, and you can still buy them for an incredible amount of money, actually, uh, TARDIS toys, um, and also f- uh, figures of the Doctor, Leela, the K1 robot, uh, there was a Dalek, um, there was a talking K9, and there was an old 70s style Cyberman as well. But those are the first sort of action man type toys that I remember. Are they the same sort of things that I know as Daypole figures? Or are they something different as well? No, I think they're different because I remember Daypole. Yeah. And I had a couple of Daypole Daleks as well. But Dennis Fisher is a new one. I, I think they went on to either work with or became part of Hasbro. Dennis Fisher, but they, they certainly weren't a huge company. They weren't. They weren't huge. I mean, and the, the figures themselves. I say t- uh, Tom Baker, Leela, uh, the K One robots, and a Cyberman were about. Oh, I'd say about. 10 inches tall, uh, 10, 11 inches tall, um, mm. but, but great, very, very moulded, but, re- but really great toys. And the TARDIS was cool, because what you could do is you could put the Doctor into the TARDIS, spin the light, press a button, and you, you would open the front doors and he'd have vanished. Clearly he'd just been sp- spun around to the other side of the toy. Um, but it was, it, was, it was a magical thing. But since 2005, I've got to say, I really envy children, and to the, to, to the point where occasionally I do find myself going down to Toys R Us and buying things. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but um, what do you do with them? This is the question, because I, I do the same, Tom. There's there's actually a private department store just on the Holloway Road, very close to where I live, and they've got a ridiculous amount of official BBC merchandise, and I know I shouldn't buy it, because if I make the decision to buy it, I'll go online and get it cheaper, but I'm there anyway, <laughs> and yeah, I still buy this stuff. I've got Weeping Angels, I've got a Robot of Death still within its packaging. I can't even bring myself to take it out of its packaging, and I don't know why, but it, it's sitting on the bookcase, and you know, the, the more I do this, I think that the less chance I've got of my marriage lasting. <laughs> it, 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 it's compulsive. I just can't seem to stop doing it. It's like Whenever I see ten socks for five ninety nine, I think, oh, that's a good idea. I won't have to wash my current one so quickly, so I buy those too. There is something inside of me that's not quite right. I think, guys. Oh, just just as a um, side point, uh, James, they do have Doctor Who socks. <laughs> yes, I know. I've got lots of those too. Christmas, birthdays, Father's Days, you name it, I get something uh, with Doctor Who on it. It's really funny, more that although I'm not old enough to have experienced Dalek mania from the sixties, I, I think there's a lot of parallels between that because when you know, the Daleks became really big, you know, when they first burst on our screens in 1963. Um, there, there was Dalek merchandise everywhere. Anywhere where they could put a Dalek on it, you know, Dalek board games, Dalek uh, toys, Dalek this, Dalek that. And I think that's a, a, a real parallel to what we're seeing now because I, I suppose the burst of popularity that new Doctor Who has, anything that we can put the, uh, you know, logo or you know turn into a monster um you know gets get gets turned into some form of toy or bit of high price memorabilia it's it's just amazing well i i think um at the official doctor who convention just a couple of months or so ago we we spoke to um the writer of the girl who waited was that that was tom mccray wasn't it mm. and um he said quite openly and uh, and i know ian leeson and i were actually quite surprised but the way these handbots were designed was purely so that they could make a very easy action figure. So, it, you know, the concept of that was with merchandising mm. in mind. And, I mean, I, I don't mind that when it has absolutely no negative or detrimental impact on a story at all. But where it's so utterly clear that, for instance, uh, an adipose 
suffering. Mm, <laughs> you mm. know, and, and then you suddenly get a stress ball with an adipose and the story's not that good anyway. That's when I think it really begins to grate on me a little bit. It's a hard thing, really, because, I mean, you, you really have to... I mean, it really down to what you think about the whole merchandise um, arena as to what came first. Did, did the idea for a toy come first or did the monster come first and they thought, ah, oh, we can make a great toy out of this? And that's, that's something I often struggle with. And you do mention two things that really stick in my core in terms of what came first, that, that whole adipose thing. It, it just looks like a toy as soon as you saw it. So, you, I mean, you wonder whether it was created specifically for the idea to make the BBC money in, in, in terms of merchandise. I think we have to be careful. My, my understanding is that it's not the BBC that directly that makes money from this. Um, I, I, my understanding is that what the BBC or BBC Enterprises or BBC Worldwide, as it's now known, will do is sell licenses That's uh, right. to, uh, to produce That's the precisely merchandise. That's right. Yeah, because the BBC essentially is a not-for-profit company, right. which is why it really makes me laugh when you hear people say, all the BBC are just trying to generate money, etc. The only direction a surplus can go into is, is to more programme making. may not necessarily be Doctor Who, but yeah, licenses you certainly have to pay for, but that... It, it, it's not as if you know one additional toy, for instance, is going to suddenly increase the attractiveness of a license uh, application to a toy manufacturer. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't really make a great deal of sense just to design one monster or one robot or one alien race that can easily be converted, unless the BBC are being put under so much pressure mm. by the merchandisers. And I, I just can't see why, in all honesty. I mean, Doctor Who at the moment sells itself. It's 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 a phenomenal brand. Well, maybe and, may, um, maybe it's the it's learning the lesson from the first forty years because I mean, I, you know, now that I can, it, it, maybe this is why my, uh, my 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 bookshelf downstairs is so cluttered with the sonic screwdrivers if i could have bought them or if they could have been bought for me when i was a child i'd have oh absolutely i'd have drowned in the stuff yeah now this this is a really good point and it's something i wanted to ask you both both as well when when i was young the thing that i was really into more than anything else it wasn't doctor who it was star wars right and i had a ridiculous amount of palatoy stuff i i've still got them i think they're in my parents loft back at home still and they were highly, highly collectible. In fact, this is probably why I still don't like taking action figures out of packets, because clearly, if you, if you <laughs> they became worth so much more um, in a relatively short period of time. The Star Wars figures, if you kept them within their their, their packets, but maybe that's why you know the something inside of me wants to own these toys now it's not necessarily because i want to use them now or or show people uh, or or, or play with them it's because it reminds me of what it was like when i was really really small and i did used to play with you know stormtroopers and darth vader and so on i mean is, is that is that something that's mirrored in your own experiences i think so definitely i mean i i think you've hit on something that i was thinking but just you've come at it from a different angle when we were kids I think there was still a certain amount of merchandise available, like the day pole. You, you could buy the books, you, you could buy the VHSs and the DVDs. But I think the merchandisers realise now that there is, while the youth audience of Doctor Who has grown exponentially due, due to the new series, that, 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 that we have that new teenage and I, I, I suppose sub-teenage crowd watching new Doctor Who, you've got all mm-hmm. the old fans that used to watch classic Who, who are now mm-hmm. adults with... Uh, vast amounts of money sitting in their bank account, just itching to spend on stuff that they've spent the last 40 years idolising. And and yep. I fall into that trap to a certain extent anyway, that, you know, I've, I've bought stuff for Doctor Who. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at 
um, you know, uh, Daleks and Sonic Screwdrivers and, and other sci-fi series that I've loved. I've got a DeLorean from Back to the Future. I've got a beautifully detailed <laughs> eagle from Space 1999, for example. Um, so it's, it's the stuff that we couldn't buy 30 years ago that now we're a bit more cashed up and we go, yes, yes, yes. And, and I think that's to where the collectible market has really exploded for Doctor Who over yeah. the last 10 years. Because well, you're you, right. we're, yeah. we're seeing a lot more now of merchandise that is, I don't I mean, a lot more accurate, a lot more detailed, a lot more in the quality market, like like moulded steel and, you know, die-cast metals and stuff like that, rather than the cheap plastic stuff that we may have bought when we were, you know, 15, 16. I think there's two things from that. There's the, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even just focusing on the sonic screwdrivers, there's the £20 version of it, but there's also like the £250 mm. Millennium Effects mm. version of it, which is, and I've been lucky enough to hold one of those things, and it's like, wow, this is great. And I have to work very, very hard to stop my imagination kicking and going, it's the proper thing. It's, like, it's not. The, you know, the most it is <laughs> is a prop replica. Um, you know, I'm not going to be opening any doors or destroying Daleks with it, is what my rational brain is saying, but there's a, a very large part of my psyche going, buy it, buy it, it's the sonic screwdriver, it's the real one. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> Calm down. Um, but, at the, but at the same time, there's a, there's a, a very fine line, but, but Charles, I think you've, you've, you've got it. There, there are two audiences for this stuff. There, there, you know, there are the under-15s the under um, in body, and then there's the, un, the, 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 the under-15s in mind, and that's me. Um, and I've got a bit more cash, <laughs> and I will sit down over the computer and find I've bought a load of toys. But looking back at it, I'm just, I've just in front of me. I've just done a quick search on eBay uh, for the Dennis Fisher stuff, and you've got to be cashed up to buy this stuff. I mean, I'm looking at a toy mm. which I think would have been about five pounds in the 1970s. Um, boxes alone going for forty pounds. I mean, the boxes alone. The TARDIS that I mentioned, two hundred and seventy-nine pounds sterling. Um, wow. The K1 robot, two hundred and twenty-five pounds. Um, the Leela figure, one hundred and seventy pounds unboxed. So you know you've got to be serious to get to buy this stuff now. Hmm. Well, if you're talking about the um, the more serious collector as opposed to, uh, I suppose a a child who's a casual fan who doesn't want to be left out the circle at school. Mm. I mean, then you would move into the kind of things that they've been doing at Bonhams uh, the last couple of years, where they've been sending off actual props mm. of of the show. And I think it's more or less it's an it's an annual event. It's I think it's January or February each year where they sell, you know, these props for. Re- ridiculous sums mm. of money you're talking hundreds mm. and i think in some cases thousands of pounds mm. and clearly that is what the merchandisers are trying to to plug into with uh, developing these really very accurate replicas of the sonic screwdriver and charging two three hundred quid a piece yeah. and the only thing that we know for certain is that if people didn't buy them, then they wouldn't make them and they wouldn't continue to make them. So clearly there is a fairly rife market out there for this kind of stuff. Exactly. I mean, I I think they, I mean, if they set the price point right for those collectibles, then, you know, then they will sell. I mean, people don't mind spending a little bit more money. I mean, certainly for me, I'm, I'm looking for the quality. I'm, I'm looking for the accuracy. I'm not interested in uh, toys that, I suppose, don't represent what I've seen on screen as accurately as possible, which is why I've gone mm. for the more, slightly more expensive Sonic Screwdriver. I've gone for the you know, other sci-fi series where you know, they've released collectible items that they've gone to painstaking detail mm-hmm. for. It, it, there's, there's a massive market for that. Let me ask you a question off the back of that then. Um, again, both of you, what's, what's the most amount of money uh, that you've spent on a single item of Doctor Who merchandise? Well, well, I've been Ooh. quite. I've actually been quite good. 
Um, well, two, well, two things inside that. Number one, now the show's come back and it's so high, it's it's so high in the public consciousness. I've become very easy to buy for at Christmas and birthdays. <laughs> um, so I get an awful lot of, and, and I'm lucky that I've got such thoughtful friends because they don't, they won't just like go out and buy anything which is branded with Doctor Who. Um, I get a certain, I do get a certain amount of mugs, but I get some, what I really love is Tardis totems. I love that blue box. So um, I think the most expensive thing I've been given was this lovely ceramic uh, Tardis, which is quite gorgeous. Um, I'm looking at, but I think the most the most expensive thing I've bought. I tend to. I'm actually not bad at keeping keeping a lid on it. Uh, it's the sonic screwdrivers, pretty much as soon as they're released. I mean, the, I think there's a there's an old DWO Who cast, I think, where during the recording, my eleventh Doctor screwdriver arrives, um, and I get stupidly excited about it. Yes, I remember. And unfortunately, yeah. that wasn't a Who cast. That was a DWP. So we can't blame it on the fact it was another podcast. It was, was it. <laughs> yes. What's the last? Was it? <laughs> I'm pretty certain it I was, was. I was, yeah. I was on the phone it to you, ha- Trev, definitely. It would have to be, because it started after season five. So oh, of course, yeah. The first time we saw the 11th Doctor Sonic Screwdriver was in the 11th hour, and we were recording together then, I'm afraid. Fair play, fair play. <laughs> but that, 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 but that's, the most, that's the most expensive thing I've bought, just for the sake of wanting it. Um, so, yeah, that's why. And how, how much was that? How much was that? It was about 25 quid. Ah, small fry. Trev, how about you? <laughs> well, you see, I've, I've, I've been sitting here struggling trying to think, because... Um, I've, I've probably waxed lyrical about how there's some wonderfully expensive collectibles, but I, I'm not that cashed up that I can buy them. I, I probably spent more when I was a you know 18 or 19 year old with no dependents and no, uh, you know, no bills to pay for. I, I've spent <laughs> um, probably around about two hundred dollars on the uh, Daypole Tardis set, where you could, where you basically had a Tardis and expanded out. And there was the console room inside, and you got a few figures with it as well, and you know, sort of various things like that. So, um, I, I suppose these days for me, I'm I'm a lot more selective because I'm looking for the accuracy. I'm looking for that memory jogger rather than just general merchandise. So, okay. I've, I've become a so little t- bit more t- selective t- in my old age. So, my my brain trying to work this out. Two hundred Australian dollars is what about twenty p? Uh, two and a half, so hundred. Yeah, be about a uh, eighty pounds or something like that. So that's yeah. a fair whack. Well, you beat mm. me. I'll say that much. You beat me. Um, the, the most expensive thing I've ever bought is um, is a remote control talking Dalek. Uh, when it was first released, this was um shortly after season one of the new series had had been broadcast and i i think that was i think that was about 50 quid and wow. i've still got it downstairs and it comes up to about my kneecap i would say and my daughter who's three and a half is still very scared of it when i do occasionally <laughs> put that in the kitchen floor it's the only floor we've got that's uh, got floorboards on and is is flat and uh, she she runs upstairs or, or or tries to find her mum. So it's <laughs> you know I, it, that, that's probably the most extravagant. And it was a spot purchase as well. I bought it in Sainsbury's. Can you believe it? I went out for potatoes and I came back with a Dalek. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you, need, you need to start buying some flowers for Angela. You really do. <laughs> oh no, I, I always buy flowers cool. normally after I've bought uh, something I shouldn't have done. But I seem to remember Tom. Uh, there, there was a story, and again, the, you you might have been in the various you know. Um, unmentionable states perhaps at the time so perhaps this wasn't actually correct but aren't aren't i right in saying you bought a pair of doctor boots at some point as well yes i did 
I did. But I actually made a profit on those. Um, <laughs> oh, you sold them as well? <laughs> did I did, you? I did. Um, well, they, they, they were, they were um, Matt Smith's All Saints boots. And you're right, I've been looking and looking and looking, and I found a pair, and I paid 70, £74 for them. Uh-huh. Um, and they wow. fit me, which is fantastic. I think about a couple of months later, I, I needed the money for something else, so I, uh, I sold them on. You didn't do buy one boot, get another free or something? Something along you? those lines, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but well, there's a, there's a chap who I know Trevor and I have met. I'm not sure if you have, Tom. You probably have, uh, from Staggering Stories, Adam. Hmm. And uh, he, he made real um, attempts to buy um, the 11th Doctor shirt. So I think um, yeah, the yeah, one yeah. that he's wearing in the 11th hour, is it a Ted Baker? shirt no can't quite remember it's a branded shirt that at the time paul smith was something like paul smith you're quite right Mm. thanks tom it was it was something like 30 quid Mm. prior to matt smith wearing it Mm. and after 11th hour being broadcast you could not get it for less than 120 pounds of which Mm. adam bought two Wow. You see, you see, both of those you mentioned really aren't merchandise, are they? They're they're byproducts no, they're not. of, of they're the popularity not. of the show, and mm. and that's one interesting area because I, I I suppose you could also maybe apply that to uh, David Tennant's shoes as well that he wore, his Converse's or whatever they were. I'm I'm sure they would have skyrocketed in price. Once he'd spent a few years in the role, they were so common now. You can pick those up pretty much anywhere, even now for oh, you know, okay. thirty so quid. And yeah. again, I live in the middle of London, so these aren't so much toys. But again, I'm really pleased when I receive uh, David Tennant ties. I mean, uh, the Tenth Doctor tie was made by a company called Duffer, Saint George, Saint George by Duffer. So when I when I receive those, I still feel this is great because it, you know it's my it's my little bit of Doctor Who cosplay without actually giving away the, <laughs> giving away my fan my fanness. Do you know that's the only way that I will ever. End into, into cosplay if I happen to find something like an absolute identical leather jacket <laughs> to the that the Ninth Doctor wore because you could wear it out and nobody would know you know you don't have to go out in like a Dalek dress then where it's rather noticeable well I've, do you know what I've found I've, I've I actually found on eBay one of those Ninth Doctor jackets it's what's called a Kriegsmarine leather U-boat jacket oh, right. <laughs> I've got mine now. I mean, I went to Glastonbury last year, and there was there was one right there in my size for eighty pounds. So, all right, you know what? That's it. That's the most expensive thing I've bought. That jacket, eighty pounds. I paid for it at Glastonbury last <laughs> wow. year. Wow. Um, and it, but it fits and it's correct. You know, so it's like, well, that's my that's my Doctor Who jacket. I'm, I'm well pleased. You see, that sort of sparks a memory from my early days with Doctor Who fandom. Fan created merchandise. Now, I'll give you an example: yeah, yeah. the Seventh Doctor umbrella. Um, mm. never as as far as I'm aware available to buy off the rack it, it was something that was created um, for the seventh doctor by goodness knows who I mean it wasn't from a company but we had a, a certain fan here in Brisbane with our local club back in the day who spent I think over 200 Australian dollars um, getting this this plastic manufacturer to recreate um, a replica seventh doctor Umbrella. I'm, I'm just wondering whether you guys have ever ever come across people who've who've gone to that level of um, obsession to create their own merchandise. Kinda. I don't know people, but uh, I, I've run into people at conventions who have knitted their own question mark pullover, for instance. Mm. And, and I'm not being funny. If, if, even if you if you knit that yourself, or whether you know a benevolent relative knits it for you, you you can't get much wear out of that, surely. I mean, it's, um, it's not something you'd you go out in. Um, so I, I, I think the creativity is there. And again, once again, I'm, I'm sorry to keep coming back to Gallifrey, but that really is a kind of microcosm of, um, of Doctor Who fans. You've got every single area of fandom represented at that convention. Uh, they've got knitting rooms 
And again, people are, are knitting fluffy TARDIS or TARDI and, uh, and Daleks. I, I was sitting next to a couple of girls in one of the presentations last year, or the last time I was there, and they had, there was about four or five small Daleks. I'm trying to think what, how big they were. Probably, you know, twice twice the height of your hand if you put one on one on top of the other. They were fluffy Daleks. And I just, I had to speak to them because I knew Natasha at the time would absolutely adore them. And the, the level of creativity and the amount of work people put into recreating these things that are not going to have any intrinsic worth, but they just show very, very clearly that you're a fan of a show and you celebrate it in a very mm. unique way. Mm. To me, it's interesting. I mean, again, I'm just looking on this auction site at some of the stuff you can buy. I'm seeing replica Daleks, £2,000. Oh, Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of effort that goes into them. We we had mm. um, some fans when I was back involved with the with the Brisbane Doctor Who fan club who used to create Daleks from various eras, and he used to spend like a year of his life basically creating a you know a Dalek based off the one in Destiny of the Daleks. There's a lot of effort that goes into them. Oh, absolutely, it's it's taken to the nth degree. And if if you remember, Trev, the the, the guy you spoke to in Toowoomba uh, about building mm. a TARDIS, mm. I, I I think you went on to talking about creating Daleks in you know in the same same way there's a Dalek builders guild you know that that in itself shows you how seriously people take the show um and again it, it's not explicitly uh, merchandising or toys but I, I do think the individuals who buy the toys share something with those who take their obsession that little bit further and start recreating TARDIS in the living room etc and, mm. and that fascinates mm. me because I think it's you know if, if I was left unchecked um, you know and I didn't have any constraints as, as you said earlier Trevor you know you <laughs> tend to buy a lot of these stuff when you haven't got dependents or a family I wonder what to what extent would I go to what length would I go to and would my house or flat or wherever I happen to be living just be a shrine to the program, thereby probably <laughs> confirming my status as a bachelor forever. Well, this is this is a qu- this is a question I wanted to ask you, Trevor. Actually, you've got uh, a young family or relatively young family. Um, my understanding is that they're Doctor Who fans. I mean, how does this toy, how, how do the, the, the amount of toys that are available actually impact on you as a father? Mm. Really um, good question. Not really sure, actually. I, I, I think my, my children certainly are happy to consume the show for what it is because I think in Australia. Um, we don't have the exposure to the level of merchandise that, say, you guys do. I mean, James, you said you had a shop just down the road, basically. Um, where where we see a lot of exposure is at our conventions. We, we have a very big national convention here called Supernova, which is a, a general TV and tele-fantasy and anime convention. And we went there last year and we're just overwhelmed by the, by the stalls filled with Doctor Who merchandise. And and I think it's at those points that my children get very excited about owning a TARDIS or owning a Dalek, and and, and, and I'm quite happy to fuel that. But um, I, I think as a general day-to-day thing, we, we don't see that very often. They're, they're very excited to consume the media, but, but, they, but they don't have as much exposure to, um, I, I, I suppose, buying the toys and merchandise as you guys would. So if you were to take your children uh, to Gallifrey and you let them loose in the dealer's room there, which, quite frankly, Tom, is the size of a building, um, I mean, how, how concerned would you be? I think they would be as concerned as Megan was with me being let loose in, uh, in the uh, Gallifrey that I went to uh, last year. I, I came away um, seriously considering having to buy another suitcase just to get home. 
so, <laughs> uh, it, uh, again, I mean, it's like a kid in a candy shop, you know, because we're starved for it to a certain extent. You know, we have to buy it online if we have to, but then you don't often want to do that because you want that um, tactile feel to it before you purchase it. You want to know what you're getting, I think, to a certain extent mm. before you pass over your money. And, and, and that's why conventions like Gallifrey and Supernova are so fantastic because you can hold it in your hand before you part with your money. I think that's very true um, about most things that are collectible. It's, um, you know, it's not so much a convenience thing where you buy your DVDs, you know precisely what you're going to get, you know what the product's going to do. Mm. And I think you know, if you look at the slightly seedier side of merchandising, and you, we mentioned licensing earlier on, but there's a hell of a lot of unlicensed merchandise out there too. And, of course, they make their real money online because of that very thing you mentioned, Trevor. People don't know what they're getting. And I think that's probably a fairly unique thing uh, for me because I will buy online pretty much whenever I can, apart from, you know, on-the-spot moments. And, unfortunately, when you bring about that on-the-spot moment, like in a dealer's room at any of the conventions, it's extremely hard to, to be sensible and start thinking about, you know, I shouldn't really be spending so much money. And if that wasn't the case, then you wouldn't have had that show, uh, Get Your House in Order or Get Your Life in Order, actually attend a Doctor Who convention to sell merchandise at inflated rates in order to raise money. Mm, that's right, that's right. It's interesting, James, you talk about the seedier side of things because that's one question I wanted to try and round this conversation out with. Um, in the spirit of our least favourite Doctor Who episodes podcast we did recently, what is your least favourite bit of merchandise? Or, or, <laughs> or maybe even more specifically, what is the bit of merchandise that you think has gone beyond the pale? I, I think the one that springs to mind that I really feel, oh, come on, but I couldn't help but being slightly fascinated by it anyway, was the complete TARDIS tea set. <laughs> and that was your teapot was a TARDIS, and you had I think it was um, roundels on the on on the teacups as well. There'd been a lot of work put into it, you know, and, and I don't think it was available, you know, on on, on a mass basis. It was a case there was only a few ever made. But I remember thinking, no, this is a little bit too far. It even came with a serviette, well, not serviette, with a um, a, like a picnic blanket which had the TARDIS <laughs> on it as well. So I mean, you you wouldn't really do anything other than just play with this at home surely but maybe maybe that qualifies for me what about you tom um the, the occasionally it's clear to me that there's just been a a doctor who logo or a face slapped on something um and it's not so much the official merchandise it's when people sell stuff and claim that it's doctor who merchandise yeah um for instance when i, when I see uh, braces being sold and it's like doctor who braces no they're not they're just braces um or when, <laughs> or, or, or when i see um well actually in point of fact the uh, the u-boat commander's leather jackets being sold as Doctor Who leather jackets they're not um, for a start the lapels are all wrong um, but, but in fact guys I've just sent you a link to I know they are um, um, that, that's the fan properly coming out um, oh, but, yes. but, if you, but if you know what you're looking for for instance um, depending on when this is this actually goes goes out to the world um, if you type WW2 German U-boat leather navy deck jacket you'll find pretty much the the actual garment, which is you know, which is the Ninth Doctor's jacket. Um, so, I, I, my, my objection is when you've got stuff which just has Doctor Who slapped on it to sell it. I mean, I think there was the worst I ever saw was someone had a, a little leather 
um, a, a little leather notebook, and they and they, and they were selling it as Doctor Who psychic paper notebook. And it's like, oh, get off. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the reason I asked was because I actually came across one the other day. You know, when I was browsing through the internet, as one is want to do, and you know they've released various sets in Doctor Who, like you've got Weeping Angels sets and uh, Cybermen sets and something like that. The one I came across the other day, which I think is due for release very soon, uh, is a Victory of the Daleks playset. Now, what it has, it has an action figure. It actually, it's actually called, believe you me, an action figure of Winston Churchill. <laughs> now, that's weird. And it, it also comes with three small plastic telephones in different colours, presumably... You know, one to the Kremlin and one to Berlin and one to the US <laughs> or something like that. But it also comes with a Dalek holding a, uh, a tea tray oh, with goodness. some tea on it. And it's it brilliant. is billed as the Victory of the Daleks playset. Now, that, that, that Ian McNeese thought, will be okay, so pleased. They, they are really <laughs> having us on here. They, they are milking it for every possible thing. Because, I mean, it really reminded me of what they used to do with uh, Star Wars figures, James, where. Yeah. Um, yeah you would have one of the minor <laughs> bounty hunters or villains in it and they would have one figure from the way he looked in one movie and one figure from the way he looked in another movie or they mm. might have Han Solo in a brown jacket and Han Solo in a tan jacket or um, three different Luke Skywalkers all with different coloured lightsabers and stuff like that. Yep. That, that, yep, that yep. to me is just milking the fans for all it's worth. And but, I had them all. But, I really did. <laughs> but, is that, but, that, but that's the thing, though. I mean, as much as I, as much as there is a creative and an altruistic um, part to uh, telling these stories, that's, that, that's you know that's 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 the bottom. You know, that there's a story being told. There's a myth being spun. On the other side of it, you got to make money. And, and and I understand what you're saying about take you know about taking the money out of the fans. Sorry about that. My machine's just started up again. Um, so I understand what you're saying about taking money out of the fans, but otherwise, where, where are you going to get the money from? It, it does seem a bit... Um, in fact, I'd, I'd be very interested to hear from the listeners about this. So guys, what do, what do you think? Is it a bad thing that there's so much merchandise out there? You know, the BBC's got to make... Or BBC Enterprises have to make money somehow. George Lucas has to make the money somehow. And I know there's a lot of Star Wars fans and some Doctor Who fans who are aggrieved at the level and quality of merch, merchandise that's available. But is that necessarily a bad thing? That, you know, you've you got to make the cash somehow. Well, it depends where the money goes into, and as what we were saying earlier, mm. and uh, I, I do think we've got to be very careful here because the BBC don't make money out of it. They do not make a profit. They don't have a bunch of shareholders who you know, benefit from having 50 billion toys yeah. uh, on the shelves. Yeah. Um, it, you know, what really benefits is the BBC because they get the more money to invest in creating programs. Cool. And there's no one sitting there laughing all the way to the bank here. Uh, but the question certainly is very valid. Is there too much stuff out there? I mean, is it compromising the brand or is it actually enhancing Doctor Who's reputation worldwide? And yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know what people think too. As always, feedback at the DoctorWhoPodcast.com. <laughs> As James mentioned, there are now six members of the podcast crew, um, and we've only heard from three of us today, so we now have two beautiful people reviewing a Big Finish audio from a long time ago called The Beautiful People. So this week we have another Big Finish companion chronicle. This one's called The Beautiful People, written by Jonathan Morris, and this features the fourth Doctor and the second Romana, as voiced by Lala Ward. This begins with the fourth Doctor on the hunt for a good donut. I strolled over to join the Doctor at the console. So, where are we going? 
the doctor blew on his hands before operating the randomizer, as though trying to coax some money out of a fruit machine. Somewhere in the universe where there are a lot of doughnuts, he declared and slammed down the materialization lever. And then, with a wheezing, groaning sound, K9 trundled in, his nose completely covered in strawberry jam. And of course, being in search of donuts, he instead ends up at an exclusive health spa. I was looking forward to hearing this recording from Lala Ward, but I have to say I didn't hugely enjoy the performance. I thought the sound was a bit odd. It had a sort of a cold, echoey character to it that I found detracted from the atmosphere of the story. Well, this is one of the earlier companion chronicles from Big Finish, and I don't know that they had all the tricks up their sleeve that they do now in terms of understanding just what the range could be. For instance, this is very much a, a talking book with Lala Ward doing some performance, but you know, this still even has chapter titles that she, she lists as she goes from episode to episode. So some of the things may not be fully formed yet here. Yes, and I think you can see that in the actual structure as well, where although this is a four-episode story, Episodes two, three, and four are about 10 minutes each, which was actually quite surprising when listening because the cliffhangers kept popping up a lot sooner than you were expecting them. Looking at the actual story itself, the basic plot here is a health farm where they're harvesting fat people. And I found that to be a rather obvious and cliched direction to take the story. I've seen that same thing played out in in many other places. And actually, what they were doing wasn't particularly evil. It's described within the story as being this terrible, horrible thing that they're taking the fat from people and doing stuff with it. But honestly, in terms of what they're doing to the person, it wasn't much different from liposuction. And as many people would pay good money to have this process done to them. And who really cares what they do with the excess material when they're done? There was a little sort of um, coda hung off of it that they were going to force the entire galaxy to be thin. But it seemed very tacked on and was the only thing that actually turned it into anything that I thought was a genuine threat. I had the exact same thought. I began to feel a little guilty because the characters were becoming appalled at this weight loss program, and yet I, too, couldn't see anything terribly wrong with it until they seemed to sort of tack on a little element of brainwashing, that the people, after they had gone through this procedure, uh, were somewhat brainwashed to go and spread the word about this process and how everybody needed to have it done. Until then, it sounded like a pretty good idea to me. And I actually thought that the way they addressed the issues around weight and how it's dealt with, was a bit on the crude side. Uh, In some places, they took quite a trite uh, approach. They say, don't they, that beauty is only skin deep, and it's what's inside that counts. Well, maybe that's true. But if your skin is 20 inches thick, nobody will be able to make out what's inside, will they? And you, all of you, have the potential to be slim. Wonderfully, wonderfully slim. You, too, can be one of the beautiful people but in other places they were very offensive in how admittedly the some of the characters doing this deliberately um described and talked about uh fat people and, and the problems with it i thought it was a very confused approach to what is quite a sensitive issue well this was certainly a comedy I tend to be of the opinion that so long as the story takes itself seriously within the context of the story uh, so that I don't find it impossible to suspend my disbelief, then I'm willing to go along with a fair amount. And and for me, this stayed just on the right side of that line. It was funny. I think most of the negativity towards people who are fat came from the villain and was, in fact, shown to be villainous. Um, So I didn't find the offense that you might be talking about, but it certainly was intended 
as a comical episode, and that may or may not sit well with everyone. To be honest, it didn't really strike me as being a comedy. I hadn't really picked up on it being a deliberately humorous story. It just seemed to be a relatively straight-down-the-line Big Finish audio, which is maybe one of the reasons I had some problems with it. I also thought that the treatment of the Doctor was a bit strange. In all of these companion chronicles, they, they nearly always try and find some excuse to get the Doctor off stage so that they're not trying to copy his voice all the time. But here, he just seemed to vanish for no apparent reason and spent apparently most of the story in the gift shop. See, that was part of the comic elements. And uh, remember, the chapter titles were things like Slim Chances and Narrow Escapes and Live and Let Diet. Yeah, there certainly was an element of comedy. Clearly didn't work for everyone. I, I, I thought the resolution's a little bit forced and a bit brutal in terms of how they dealt with the, the villain of the piece. Uh, especially in what is apparently a comedy. Overall, I I wanted to like this because I was looking forward to hearing Lala Ward do a recording. And it wasn't a bad story, but I didn't find it very satisfying. Like you, I find this one to be mediocre, I guess, for lack of a better word, although I think I enjoyed the humorous elements and the performance by Lala Ward maybe better than you did. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Michelle. Beautiful people. Yes, it's an early companion chronicle. Jonathan Morris is one of the best writers Big Finish have, uh, have, have found, really. And this is one of his early, really good pieces of work. And I would thoroughly recommend that you take a listen to this as well. And Lala Ward is on top form here as well. Yeah. Really, really good stuff. And I think, guys... That's about it for this week of the Doctor Who podcast, isn't it? Have, have we got anything else to say? So soon? Surely can't be so soon. I know, I know. It's, it's terrible. It feels like it's gone really quickly this time. It has, it has, yes. Perhaps it's because Leeson's not here, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, guys, we would always, you know, we, we love to get feedback from all over the world. It's a wonderful and amazing thing that so many of you write to us and send us MP3s. So, again, um, as James mentioned earlier on, if you've got a view on the amount of merchandise that's available, the quality of merchandise that's available, if you want to share with us the most you've ever spent on a piece of merchandise or toys, then please drop us a line, feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. Always glad to hear from you. Wonderful to talk to you as always, and listeners, we'll catch up with you very soon. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Take it easy. Hope your bathroom dries out, Leeson. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Oh, have you seen the set reports? There's a pic- the, the Silurians and Sontarans on set. I saw the Sontaran in the um, in the old penguin suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks like odd job. Oh god, we're going to have shows like that again. Ha ha! Isn't that so funny? Sontarans in penguin suits. Oh, chortle, chortle. Cynic. What do you want? This is amazing. How can you judge it before you've seen it? I've seen a picture of a Sontaran in a penguin suit. That's so enough. <laughs> That's all I need to know. Right. Okay. The rest is immaterial. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. <laughs>